0: America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Hi everyone, welcome to The Next Normal in collaboration with America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna, and nowadays when I look at the collaborations with Aligned Energies, I can see how the world can become such a better place. But if we could just align our energies with each other, there would be heaven on earth. I don't know what is the dynamics or the roller coaster of a ride that we choose to go on when two energies come together and there's some trauma, you know, there's just stuff happening or drama that's happening. And I've been saying this for a while, that on our own, we feel like we're perfect, feel like we can be okay. But then the moment my energy comes into connection with another human being, I change. Either I become a liar, a thief, a joyful person, a religious person, a dogmatic person, a quiet person, numb, or maybe I might just end up being myself. One never knows. But there's quite an interesting observation if you keep checking your feelings that each time you come in connection with a person, how do you feel? Do you stay the same person with everyone? To me, I think my ultimate journey at this incarnation is that I've got to develop the art of loving everyone the same so I can be true to me. And as much as I aim to achieve that, I can see how Sometimes, just with a few folks, it's not with many, how my energy is different when I'm with them. And it gives me the opportunity to do the work, to become my own therapist, my own teacher, and to specialize in understanding who I really am. Britt Frank is our special guest today, and she's a therapist, teacher, speaker, and trauma specialist who is committed to dismantling the mental health myths that keep us feeling stuck and sick. She's also the author of the new book, The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia, to find your path forward. Britt's work focuses on empowering people to understand the inner mechanisms of their brains and their bodies. When we know how things work, the capacity for choices is restored, and life can and does change. Whether she's leading a workshop, teaching a class, or working individually with private clients, Britt's goal is to educate, empower and equip people to transform even their most persistent and long-standing patterns of thinking and doing. It gives me a great pleasure to welcome Britt to the air. Britt, welcome and thank you for the work that you're doing out there. I'm sure it's helping people.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so looking forward to this talk.
0: You know, trauma is a big thing and I think there's not a single soul who has not enjoyed some aspect of trauma. I know it goes through different stages or it has different levels of trauma. Trauma of being abducted, waived, abused, tortured, those are different. The trauma of being in a war and witnessing lives being taken through bombs or gunfire, that's a different trauma. The trauma of someone just looking at me with their eyes. Have you ever had that one done to you? Oh, yes. <laughs> Where they just look at you with those eyes and they're just showing how much they're dissatisfied with you. That traumatizes the soul, too, on a very psychic and subtle level. So I'm curious to find out, and I'm sure our viewers are too, what was your inspiration that brought you into becoming a trauma specialist? Do tell.
1: And I love that you named that we all experience it to differing and varying degrees, but trauma is really part of being human. No one gets to come here and escape without experiencing trauma at some level, to some degree. I wish I could say that my decision to become a trauma therapist was this altruistic, I want to help the world, and it was really not, it wasn't quite that light. It was more, I grew up with a lot of trauma, a lot of drama, a lot of chaos, and I knew if I did not figure out how these brains and our minds and our souls and our bodies all work together, I wasn't going to have a good life, and I wasn't going to survive the life that I was participating in. And so through my own healing process, I got very excited about the possibility of this work because it does not require advanced training to heal from trauma. And that is incredibly exciting to me as a human. And so after a while, all I wanted to read about, talk about, do all day was this work. And so I did.
0: We hear a lot about trauma, but what does it really mean, Britt? What is trauma?
1: I love that question because since the pandemic, everyone is talking about trauma in a way that was not permissible prior to. So on the one hand, I'm very excited that trauma is the trendy buzzword that everyone is comfortable throwing around. You know, because trauma is trending. It's important that we name it because if we're not using accurate language to describe our experience, we're going to get stuck and we're not going to be able to change our experience. So the definition of trauma that I use comes from Dr. Peter Levine, and he created a trauma modality called somatic experiencing, which is just a very fancy way of saying we live in physiological organisms, and our physiological bodies interact with the environment in ways that affect our moods, our thoughts, and our feelings. And so the definition that Dr. Levine uses is trauma is anything that is too much, too fast, or too soon. In other words, Anything that exceeds our brain's processing ability will land as trauma. And I said another way, trauma is not about what happens to us, although certainly the things that happen to us can be traumatic. But trauma is not defined by events. It's defined by the internal process that our brain goes through. So by that definition, anything can be traumatic. Being in a war or being assaulted certainly is going to create some problems. But like you just said, Someone staring you down with contempt and spite can have not just a spiritual, emotional impact, but it can have a physiological one as well. So it's so important to know that trauma is like digestion in the brain. To some degree, if you're human, you're going to have indigestion from food. To some degree, if you're human, you're going to have indigestion from your brain's inability to metabolize our experiences. So it's a very compassionate, very broad definition. It doesn't mean that everything is going to traumatize us. It does mean that regardless of the severity of your experience, your brain gets to automatically decide whether or not that's going to land in your system as traumatic.
0: One of the things that I've noticed with just the word trauma, Britt, is that it creates this intensity and like fear of the worst thing could have happened or did happen to you. I never thought about what you just said, that it's either quick, fast, or too much. What is it?
1: Too fast or too soon.
0: Yeah, like I never thought of trauma at all in any of that capacity, but you've also said that the opposite of trauma is choice. Can you elaborate more why, how?
1: So the one by the definition of trauma, if we could have had a choice, we would have all chosen not to be traumatized. If all of the options were available to us, no one chooses trauma. And so trauma could also be defined as the complete and utter absence of choice. By that notion, anywhere in our healing journey, we're able to make choices. And again, we don't all have access to the same resources. We don't all have access to the same choice points. But if trauma is the complete absence of choice, anywhere there's the presence of choice is going to begin to do a little bit of that healing work. So in my practice, I'm very big on no matter what's going on for you, If you can be mindful of choices, even if it's what can you eat today, what are you going to wear, what road are you going to travel to get to work, it doesn't matter. Anywhere your brain is conscious and mindful of a choice, your trauma to a small degree, but we'll take whatever degree we can, is going to start to abate. And so trauma's opposite is the ability to make choices and to go in the direction that we choose because we did not get a choice when it came to our trauma.
0: But aren't we always making choices anyway? I will choose to not have coffee because my Viome result told me, my Viome, which is this healthing thing I'm on, tells me I should avoid chocolate. And even though I know I should, every time I, not chocolate, coffee, every time I have a cup of coffee, I can feel how unhealthy it is for me. And yet I continue to have coffee again and again. Today is my first day of choosing not to have coffee or Is it that I'm just not feeling good and I'm realizing you can't have any more coffee. It's not good for you. So are we making choices or are sometimes our recording of our lives is just making us do what we're doing?
1: That's such a great question. And it gets really into the philosophical weeds because our choice is conscious. Are they unconscious? Are they based on logical, mindful rational thought, or are they based on autonomic nervous system processes? Like we don't get a choice about automatic physiological processes. So in that sense, is it a choice? It gets very dicey. So when I say the opposite of trauma is choice, it's more like, are the choices that you're actually wanting to make, the choices that you know will produce health and vitality, are those the ones you're making? And if there's a dissonance between what you know and what you choose, I would question whether that's actually a choice. Again, that doesn't mean we get to abdicate responsibility. It wasn't my choice. You know, I mean, I was a drug addict. It wasn't my choice. I just used them because my autonomic nervous system wanted relief. That's no, but it's not an excuse. It is an explanation. And it's helpful to know that we have consciousness and we have unconsciousness. We have logic and we have automatic physiology and we really need to harmonize all aspects of our humanity. And we largely miss out on the fact that we're biological organisms and there are things that our brains do in response to our environment and self-preservation is a biggie. And so I think of choice as the ability to make all of the unconscious as conscious as possible to the degree we can.
0: Yeah, I was really talking to the family this morning and I was telling them that I'm usually so mentally strong. If I decide or choose, I'm not going to have coffee, I won't. And I've been asking myself, why is it that I'm just not able to hold true to this? I want to feel 100% healthy. I want to see everything dynamic around me. And yet I'm drinking the coffee. I'm having the chocolate. I'm eating the sugars. And I'm just observing myself. And I'm saying, what part of you did you give up on? You know mm-hmm. better than this. So sometimes I'll have these internal dialogue, but I'm waiting for the power to come in. I have the knowledge, but my heart hasn't caught up to it. Do you know of any sort of a misconception that people might tend to have about trauma nowadays because on one level, there's the intellectual thing of what happened or what could happen, and then on the other level is, I'm not feeling the next dimension for me. I'm not feeling me being trauma-free from this experience. So how do they capture that balance? What is the misconception that people tend to have about trauma?
1: There are many. One big misconception is that there's a differing between those who have it and those who do not, and we all have it to a degree. So there's no such thing as a human being with no trauma. No matter how good you had it as a child, no matter how resourced your family was, we all have it to a degree. A big misconception about trauma that I actually have not spoken much about is that you can get healed from trauma without grief. And the only thing for many people that's worse than this idea of, trauma is this idea of grief, grief being a complete surrender to what will never be or what never was or what can never happen. And one of the biggest healing medicines for the trauma process is the willingness to step into the grieving process. I know for me, I was willing to do pretty much everything except grief. So what you said about coffee and chocolate is a perfect example. And I have the same issue. (laughs) I'm not willing, at least not today, to grieve the loss of the chemicals that I get from ingesting the things that I like to ingest that don't like me. And it's sad to say goodbye to a substance or a person or a habit or a behavior or a thinking process, because it's been a way that we've soothed. If it's been a way that we've coped, if it's been a healing. When I quit smoking cigarettes, I felt like These are my 20 little friends that were with me every single day through a lot of really hard things. And when humans failed me, my Marlboros were always by my side. I know that sounds a little strange, but we all attach emotionally to our habits, even our toxic habits. And so knowing that one of the biggest paths you're going to need to walk to heal trauma is grief, that's a hard sell. Grief is a dark, scary, lonely path through the woods, and it's the way out. So one of the bigger misconceptions about trauma is that you can heal it without grieving. And on the lighter end, a big myth about trauma is that you're stuck there forever. To the degree that you have choices and safety in your actual environment, trauma can heal. It's an injury. It's not an illness.
0: It's an injury. Not an illness. I like that. I'll remember that one for a while. So let's talk about your new book, Congratulations, The Science of Thank
1: Stuck.
0: You. Hey, How did you come up with that name? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I wish I could say that I came up with it, but I was chatting with someone and she was asking me, tell me about your work. And it was a quick conversation. It was kind of a networking thing. And I'm like, oh, I talk about the science of duck." And it was like, oh, that's the title. I've always known I wanted to write a book. I knew that at some point a thunderbolt would strike me as to what it should be. And in that moment it was, oh, that's my book title. Cool. And then I went to the grindstone and started working on it. And here it is. But it just sort of popped out of my mouth talking about the work I do. Because that mm-hmm. sounds better that's than trauma true. healing thank you so much
0: <laughs> that's so great now I think there's not a single person who has stuck in their lives in one way or the other whether it's in relationships or career or whatever tell us a little bit about how to get unstuck and what is it that actually puts us in that place of being stuck
1: mm-hmm. there are two main things that keep us stuck I think the first being lack of accurate information If you don't know, and I use our cell phones as a great example, if your phone dies and you don't know that you need to charge it, you're going to think your phone is broken. It's like, your phone's not broken. Just go plug it in. It needs to recharge. And if you don't know that your brain is largely organized the same way, when you shut down, when you get stuck, when you feel immobilized, when you feel overwhelmed, largely we assume that it's an internal problem. Something is wrong with me. I am broken. I am defective. I'm lazy. Insert label of choice. But if you don't know that just like your phone needs to be plugged in and charged or else it won't work, our physical organisms need certain things in order for us to feel the energy and the capacity and the motivation to mobilize in the direction that we want to go. So it's so important to know that there's information that you don't have that can explain why you're not moving. And so really the first step no matter where you're stuck or to what degree you're stuck, is to start with the assumption that there's a reason for this, even if you don't know what it is. Perhaps there's information that I may not have. Blame this so I can take another step forward. But if we start with the assumption that we're broken, we're not going anywhere. Nothing will paralyze anyone faster than shame. Shame is emotional, it's psychological, it's spiritual, and it's physiological. If you're getting slammed from all four quadrants, you're not going anywhere. So taking accountability is wonderful, but you can take accountability for your actions without shaming yourself for them. So step one, no matter where you're stuck, start with the assumption there's a good reason, there's likely a biological reason, and we can work with it, and we can change it.
0: You know, it's funny as you're talking, I'm reminded of my time in a country that I was in recently, and there was a part behind my room where there was a village And there was a particular house next to the village. So it was made up of cow dung. It was a mud hut. And then you had these really simple houses. And very often I would just look through my window or go outside on the veranda and I would just look at how they were living. And I could see how they would go and get water in the morning, come back. And then they would feed the cow or the chickens or the goats and then i'd see the woman would take a bath in her out bathroom and then she would get the food together and the kids would just be running around the men would do whatever and sit and whatever then i thought to myself those people don't care about world transformation or my trauma and what i've been through and how this is not right and you know how do i get back at my uncle for what he did to me or did not do and etc And I was thinking sometimes, do we put just way too much information into our trauma? The reason I'm just getting this thought for the first time. I looked at that family for almost three weeks, almost every other day. And I just saw those women, they walked around, did their thing. The men did their thing. The kids were playing. And I'm sure they must have been through challenges. But how are they coping with their stuff? Or do they not cope with it? And why is it that we, in... Civilized environment are constantly talking about our issues are mental. I'm depressed. This is not working This is like hell for me. What is it that we're missing? Because I looked at the simplicity of this family mm-hmm. and I saw that their main agenda was get food get water cook Clean be with the family Maybe the husband went to work and that was it and maybe I didn't spend time with them to even know what their traumas are But I looked at them every day and I see, if I go down there to tell them, let me teach you how to meditate and transform your life and to get out of this poverty and to become more than what you are, they'd look at me like, I'm fine. Are we making too much of a big deal with the life experiences that we're going through? It's just coming to me now as a result of our conversation.
1: I love that you named that. And there are two big things to know about that. Number one, our brains were not designed to ingest the amount of information that we have available to us. Our brains were designed to be aware of and concerned with our villages, the people that we were in direct contact with. We were never supposed to know what is happening on every corner of the globe in every country. If we're talking about trauma being an exceeding amount of information, we're not supposed to know all of this stuff. So that's one thing. But the second thing that you named about that family, it reminds me of there was during a trauma conference, we were told, you know, there was this big natural disaster and trauma therapists were dispatched across the globe to show up and descend upon this community to help them with what was certainly to be PTSD because this huge natural disaster, it was a tsunami. And they found largely that their help was not needed. And it's not because that natural disaster wasn't traumatic. It was because that community had each other. That community put a high value on interconnectivity, on interdependence. That family that you named, they were together. The men were together. The women were together. The children were together. So largely what I see is that we will get very intellectual about our trauma. We'll name it. But we refuse to connect with each other because that's scary. I'll tell my trauma story every day, every which way to Tuesday, but put me in a room full of other women. Oh my goodness, no. I tell all the men that I work with, you guys need to get in a room and talk to each other because you're all saying the same thing. The disconnection, the isolation, and the unwillingness or inability to connect with each other will perpetuate trauma. That family that you saw, I guarantee if you spoke with them, place a high value on being together, And seeing each other, on witnessing, on helping, on supporting. And as intellectual and as stimulating as our world is, it does not place a high value on togetherness, on let me see you. I want you to see me. Let's hold up mirrors to each other, reflecting our worthiness back to each other. We don't do that. And in the absence of compassionate and skillful witness, trauma won't heal. So I think that was really the key there. Well, it's like what you said earlier.
0: Too fast, too much. And I never thought about the people living in the village aren't saturated with all of the information that we keep taking in. And 90% of it we don't need. I mean, of course, I loved hearing that we have now a Supreme Court justice who's African-American. And it's not about her being African-American. It's about her qualifications. She happens to be African-American. And wow, isn't that great? Do you know how many of her are around and have never been seen or acknowledged. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like that news I want. I want to hear about that. I want to be inspired that, ah, humanity's progressing. Humanity is becoming more forgiving and more understanding of how each soul steps up to the plate and offers a lot. But then you can put yourself and listen to so much garbage. It just does nothing for you. So when I look at kids, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, they're living on an iPad or an iPhone, and I see them just go through the information for hours. Are they being traumatized?
1: So this is a tough one, with, and I'll answer that with a caveat that if you are a parent who has stuck an iPad in your child's hand during the pandemic, no shame. All of the parents who are suddenly teachers, who are suddenly full-time, all of the things we do what we need to do to survive. So if you're a parent, this is not intended to shame you. And yes, all of this access, to, if you watch a child on a screen, their eyes glaze over, they look like they're hypnotized. And if you take it away from them, you will get the same reaction as if you tried to take a bottle out of the hands of an alcoholic. It is absolutely unnatural and it is counter to our human design to be We're the same way. You can see it more clearly in children. But when I'm sitting and I'm scrolling in a trance on my phone for hours on end, it is traumatizing to the brain. Now, does that mean that every child is now going to exhibit symptoms of post-traumatic? Of course not. But it is absolutely the overwhelming 24-7 information coming at us from the news, the radio, the TV, the Internet, social media is inherently traumatic because our brains cannot process it. Now, again, I appreciate that people want perspective on what's happening in the world because it's not good to you know stick your head in the corner and pretend like the world isn't on fire in some places and that there's good that we need to be doing and there's service that we need to be providing to each other. However, if you're scrolling through and reading every single crisis that's happening on the earth, you're not going to be able to be of service to anyone because your brain's going to shut down. And all you're going to feel is paralyzed by fear and guilt and shame and not enoughness and not doing enoughness. And so the question is, how can I have perspective on what's happening in the world while not being immobilized by it? And the answer to that is choose, right? Make a choice. Which topic are you going to invest your time and your energy and your resources into? You can't do everything for everyone. And if you try to do everything for everyone, you will be doing nothing for nobody. So make a choice. What issue are you going to care about? I'm sorry, but if you're human, you can't care about them all with yeah. while being useful. You can't. I wish we could, but we can't. So rather yes. than shaming ourselves for our human limitations, let's make choices and then invest our time and resources from a mindful, conscious, mobilized place so that we can be yeah. of use to each other.
0: goes back again too fast, yes. too soon, and too much because... When you look at all the information they're putting in, it's too fast, it's too much, it's too soon. And I appreciate that. We're definitely not shaming parents. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like. And whether you're a parent working at home or not, being a parent is overwhelming in its own way.
1: That's a trauma too.
0: Yeah, put your whole personality aside for another person or two or three or four and a husband or a wife. And don't forget the in-laws. There's a lot of opportunity there for transformation. <laughs> you know, there seems to be a wide range of professional opinions about trauma and mental health. I mean, does the mental health and wellness world often teach inaccurate information, though?
1: They do. And again, that's not out of sight or malice. It's because by the research takes a while. By the time you have your double-blind peer-reviewed research studies, we've already been taught the wrong thing for 10 years. So what we all were taught was based on the best information at the time, and now we know differently. And the biggest miscommunication and myth about mental health is that it's all in your mind. Mental health is not a mental process. Mental health is a physiological process. So to call it mental health is a misnomer, and again, if we don't use accurate language, we're not going to heal. Mental health is a function of your central nervous system. If your central nervous system is feeling threatened for whatever reason, it's going to send stress hormones. You're going to feel anxious or you're going to feel depressed or you're going to feel edgy or restless or whatever. And that is not a mindset issue. You can positive affirmation. And our minds are working with our thoughts, challenging assumptions. That's important. And largely mental health is a physical process. So we have to start with if your brain is hitting its, panic button. If your brain's smoke detector is going off, we need to turn that off first. And that's not a mindset thing. That's a physical thing. And largely mm-hmm. mental health providers were never taught to check in with the body. We have an entire organism from here down that needs our attention as well.
0: Yeah, but also with the soul at a soul level. I think that's been the biggest missing link, to be very honest with you, Brett. It's that we are taking care of the brain, the body what's going on with your environment, relationships, all of that. But at a soul level, what have you been Mm -hmm. through? What's been the journey in the soul? And that's why I feel meditation, contemplation, good company, connection to the divine can help to kind of remove the anxiety of all that trauma over the years. Now, is there such a thing as self-sabotage? Do we really do that to ourselves or is it just something that We've come up with because a limitation peeps his head up.
1: I love what you said about spirituality and soul work, because whatever spirituality doesn't require a deity, but we're all, I forget who said this, but the quote is every single one of us is trusting something at every second of every moment of every day. So spirituality isn't just what do you believe, but it's who's directing, you know, where are you taking your marching orders from? Whose wrath do you fear? Whose voice is in your head? And so I've never seen somebody heal from trauma that does not have an active and conscious spiritual practice, whatever version, it doesn't matter. It can be God, it could be math, it could be cooking, it can be art, it doesn't matter. So thank you for naming that because largely the soul gets ignored. In mental health, if I start talking about the soul, I get looked at like, but it's important. So this question of self-sabotage, again, our language is skewed towards shame. Our intention when we self-sabotage is not to cause harm, even though obviously we do. We all participate in choices that mess up our relationships and annihilate our sanity and destroy our lives. So we don't all do that. But to a degree, we all make suboptimal choices. What we call self-sabotage is an effort by our internal system to protect us from abandonment, rejection, shame, fear, physical threat. And again, it's not justifying it. But self-sabotage should be called suboptimal self-protection or maladaptive self-protection. Because if you dig down far enough, you'll find that even the things about ourselves that we really cringe at, the intention behind those is to protect us. And if our internal system thinks that keeping us small and immobilized will keep us alive, we're going to stay small and immobilized. So even though it has a sabotaging impact It's not Mm. intended to be. So let's call it what it is, suboptimal self-protection, because that gives us a sense of, okay, I'm trying to protect myself. Maybe I can recruit a a healthier tool. Maybe I can recruit a different resource. If it's I'm sabotaging, that goes into the narrative, I'm broken, I'm defective, what's wrong with me? And there's nothing Mm. wrong with you. Self-sabotage is an effort, an unconscious effort, and a suboptimal one Mm -hmm. to self-protect. We can change it, but let's name it accurately.
0: Nice. Nice answer. Procrastination, it seems to hold a lot of people back. Do you feel that, like, why do we procrastinate and not do the things that we're supposed to do? One thing I want to thank the universe for, it does not make me into a procrastinator. And I'm happy for that. And even when I do postpone certain things, I can see how uncomfortable I feel. I do have one project in my office to do, and I've been putting it off. (laughs) But I'm waiting for some things to arrive now. But I've been feeling that I'm making myself feel disoriented. I'm accepting that I should be disoriented as I look at my office desk. And I don't like that. But I know a lot of people have this personality of procrastinating. Why do we do it?
1: And I do it too, largely. I have an item on my to-do list that's been sitting there and I keep transferring it to the next day. And it's something so little and I just will not make myself do it. And maybe today I will. So we all procrastinate to a degree. And sometimes, like you said earlier, it's not that deep. Sometimes we procrastinate because it's an annoying task and we don't want to do it. Sometimes we procrastinate just because it's easier to not do the thing than to do the thing, or it's something we really hate doing. So as much as I love a good deep dive, sometimes you're procrastinating because you don't want to do it. No deeper implication. Just, you don't want to do it. Okay, so let's name that. And other times, we procrastinate because we're overwhelmed. When people say to me, at the end of my day, I really should go to the gym. Why am I just watching eight hours of Netflix? Okay, well, let's clock what your day looks like. You woke up, you took care of three children, you took care of a sick parent, you're navigating COVID, you went to work at a hospital for a 12-hour shift as a nurse, and you expect yourself to go to the gym after that? Like, you only have a finite amount of resources. If you're burnt out, if you're procrastinating, first, let's assess how are you doing with the rest of your day? Have you expended your energy? Is your phone dead? Is your car out of gas? If that's the case, what you're calling procrastination or laziness, that's not what that is. The brain's out of juice, reasonably. Sometimes procrastination is a reasonable response to an overwhelming environment or difficult circumstances or a stressful day. So we need to really manage what our expectations of ourselves are with the resources and the environment that we're in. And again, I'm a very, let's go, let's do rah-rah kind of person. And so I'm not saying have no expectations of yourself. Just expect yourself to do nothing. I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. Be realistic. Be honest with yourself about the challenges you're facing and is the goal that you're wanting to do in line with your resources that you have available. And if not, don't call it procrastination. It's unfortunate. Don't call it that. And if you're not doing a thing you want to do and you have the resources, That might be a fear response. Then we might need to drill down and figure something else out.
0: So from our conversation, I'm really picking up from you that the language you speak to yourself is really important. And a lot of us might say, you know, the words lazy or unmotivated are also then wouldn't be real words, that they're false. Explain that one for me, because sometimes some people are just lazy And I'm not quite sure why they're not motivated, but they just aren't. Is it that they don't have a vision for themselves or is it just that they haven't found their nook in the world? Or is it just some deep, deep deep-rooted karmas of past birth that have them hostage and they just can't seem to believe in themselves to make this life one of their best?
1: Oh, I love that question too. Call it what you want or name it how you will. It's certainly a problem that we see people not doing what they can be doing, what they should be doing to live their best lives. But let's not call it laziness. I had a family I worked with and they were so frustrated because their 22-year-old son was so lazy and they do everything for him and they gave him all of the money. They gave him a car. They set him up and he doesn't do anything but play video games. He plays video games all day long. And I said to them, I said, he's not lazy. He's actually very wisely using his resources. You are over-functioning. So it's not that he's lazy. And again, I don't agree with the behavior. It's that because he's being enabled, his brain is going, cool, well, why expend the effort to have a vision? Why expend the effort to change? Why expend the effort to get up and take a shower and leave the house? Everything is being taken care of for me. I call that you know, the princess problem, that when we want to be taken care of and every single one of our needs are met and we're never encouraged to grow or push or mobilize, we're not going to. Again, it's not a good thing, but it's not a lazy thing. It's a, well, why would they? When the benefits of staying stuck exceed the cost, we're going to stay there, right? It's only when our benefits cost us something or when our behavior costs us something that we eventually change. And we need to change the ratio. So again, for some people, what we call laziness is, well, they're highly unmotivated to change because their needs are all being met. So there's very rarely willingness to change without pain. So if we mm. deprive people, again I'm not suggesting we be completely non-compassionate and just let people be miserable, but to a degree, if we and especially for parents, if you try to protect your children from pain, they're not going to grow or change because pain mm. it's like manure as a fertilizer. It smells, it's gross, but it's entirely and crucial it's a part of the
0: growing process. That's right.
1: Yeah. And That's as in nature, true. right? Like look around as to cues on the design. You can't grow things without fertilizer. You can't grow a human functional life without, to some degree, pain.
0: But I have to say, Bray, one of the expressions of love that we feel that we've gotten really addicted to is to try to make everything easy for our loved ones with the expectation that they would value it and not take it for granted. But you are right that sometimes you lay everything out and make everything easy, that they become handicapped and becoming the taker. They have become tired. And they have no idea what next to do with their lives because all they've known is to take. And their giving is not at the level that you were giving. So I can only imagine the interesting juxtaposing of knowing how much to give and then how much to really allow the child or the spouse or the lover or the friend or the colleague at work. Now you must step in, you know. It's I can't so keep tricky. doing everything. Mm, it's a it's, trick.
1: No, well, here's what. If you do everything for a child, you are giving, again, unintentionally. But you are telling that child, I don't believe in your capacity. I don't believe in your ability to do this task. So coming alongside, supporting, teaching, nurturing, educating, all of that is great. But if I do everything for you, that's actually an incredible sign of disrespect. And it's an unintentional way of communicating you can't do it. And a child that grows up being constantly told, I don't believe in you, will act in accordance with that installed belief, no matter how unintentional.
0: Sure. I get that. It's a journey, huh? What a wonderful time we've had together. I mean, thank you. I've kind of taken as much as I could out of you in a little bit of our half hour, and I thank you so much. Leave us with an incredible website where people can really find information on you. And thank you so much, Britt, for offering us what you did today and helping us to kind of take that step forward and move more ahead in our lives.
1: I appreciate you so much. You can find me at www.scienceofstuck.com or on Instagram. Britt Frank.
0: Thank you so much, Britt Frank. It's been my privilege. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Another amazing show with so much information and insights to take you to that next level. And I'm sure there was something that Britt shared with us that helped you to take that next step, because that's what this is all about. It's time for us to take our next step and to move into I'm not going to say a better version of ourselves, but that version that feels easy, light, adventurous, curious, powerful, and even sometimes vulnerable. It's a part of the journey. So thank you all again for joining me. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And I suspect that we are all here to love each other the same. Remember, my latest book on meditation, Intimate Conversations with the Divine, is all available for you. It's available for you on Amazon and so on. But also, don't forget Britt's book on Science of Stuckedness. So I love that. And please do keep in touch with her. I think she's really got a lot of wealth of information and knowledge, which I'm sure will help you. Thanks again. Take very good care of yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Meditation Intimate Experiences with the Divine Through Contemplative Practices My new book that is out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble and you can get it from Sacred Stories Publishing or on America Meditating Radio. The Quieter You Become, The More You're Able to Hear One of my opening pages of this book. I have heard time and time again that when you go into the stories and the narratives of the 37 authors that are sharing with you their mystical experiences of the Divine, something in you changes. It has already reached number one three times in mysticism category and in new age category for new releases. I want you to get a copy for yourself and tell me what you feel as a result of closing that final page of this book. Meditation. Intimate experiences with the divine through contemplative practices. It's calling you. Can you hear it? Rice Alley Restaurant wishes you happy holidays. Located at 6838 Piedmont in Gainesville, Virginia. We're a family-owned restaurant and offer authentic Asian cuisine and sushi. Come, savor our delicacies made with love and enjoy the perfect ambiance. We look forward to seeing you there.